Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So I asked Ray if he would read our passage from Matthew chapter 28. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is your church. You are the head of this church and the chief shepherd here. And this is your opportunity now to speak through your word to each of us. And so, God, we're asking that you, by your spirit, would not just teach us things that are relevant or true, but that you'd work things into our hearts beneath the surface, touching on things and healing things. Jesus, things that you see that need attention. And so, God, we turn your direction to tell you that this is your time and that we're here to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we wrap up our little series that we've entitled God's Continued Work and Our Unfolding Story. If you've been with us, you probably are aware that we've been talking about this now for four weeks, talking about what we believe that God is doing in our little but loved local expression of the global church. We've been slowing down to talk about kind of our mission and our values as a church. Things that we're hoping, these don't feel like the introduction of new concepts or new ideas, but things I'm hoping that you've been seeing already that now you're hearing language being put to. And the reason we rolled into this series on the heels of spending the year and a half in Mark's gospel is because Mark's gospel ends rather abruptly. So we've slowed down then to talk about what Jesus does after his death and resurrection before he ascends into heaven. And in talking about what Jesus does, we've then talked about what Jesus continues to do now in the church age, and then specifically looking at how he's shaping and molding our church to be a part of that work. And if you've been around, you probably know that we have a bit of a mission statement here as a church. Here at Olive Branch, our mission is to experience renewed life as Jesus renews our thinking, giving us a renewed purpose, fulfilled alongside renewed relationships. You see, we're attempting to hit our goal of experiencing renewed life in Jesus. We're attempting to hit that goal by aiming at four different targets, and we've taken one each week. Perspective. Remember, we're looking for renewed thinking, that when we gather, we're wanting God to address our perspective and realign the way that we think about God, ourselves, and the world around us. We're like a car that's out of alignment, constantly pulling towards destruction. We need his voice and his spirit at work in our lives to realign our hearts. Yes, made in the image of God, but housing a broken, sinful, fallen nature. So we aim at perspective, but then mission. And I love the way that we discussed it together, that Jesus said that the, that the mission that the Father had given to him, he was then entrusting to us. And in giving it to us, 
He's going to work through our lives to reach the world around us. And we believe that that's something that God has called us to do together in a community. And that's the third target we've aimed at. That we believe that God has entrusted his mission to us and the responsibility of us choosing to follow him and then by the power of his spirit being made into his image and likeness that we do that together as a community. That it's not just that we find in God himself the one who knows us and loves us, knows us completely and still loves us, but that we also find that in a community that's grace-filled, a community that shares his heart, that even a place like this, people can know us and know our brokenness and yet still love us the way Jesus has loved us. We're doing all of that. We're aiming at those three targets because our real target is discipleship, is renewed life. And we believe that that's going to come about, our renewed life is, as we allow God to realign our perspective, to transform us from the inside out. And then as we find in that shift that takes place inside of us, the mission that he entrusts to us, that we will carry out together as a community, that if we do those things together, that that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a disciple, to live a renewed life. So thus far in our little series, that's what we've worked through. We found Jesus first on a road, talking to his friends, telling them that all of the book has all always been all about him. But then we found Jesus spending time in a room with some of his followers, telling them, as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. And then last week we talked about Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, where he he re uh, reinstitutes or or brings Peter back into right relationship, not just with himself, but with his community that he's now entrusting his mission to, which we used as a great opportunity to remind you of of a huge part of our church life, which is the home groups that are part of this church. An amazing gift, I believe, in my life and in yours, a place where we're known and loved inside this church is inside those groups. So I'm hoping that you're taking the step forward to get into one of those groups because I think that they're a great gift and blessing. But this final little moment is something we looked at last week. This final moment where Jesus will give a final command. We call it the Great Commission. The last instruction that Jesus will give his friends before he ascends back into heaven. It's just been read to you, but look again in your Bible. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The command that Jesus gave here is not that we should go. In fact, the way that it's worded, it's while going, while living. The command is simply to make disciples. I love, I mentioned it last week, I love the way that it's linguistically formed here, where he says, go ye and make disciples. The go that's there is a second person plural form. It's telling you that you go together, that you all have this commission to carry out, not just individually, but collectively together as a group that you'd carry this out. And then he tells them and baptize them, bring them into the community, bring them into the family of God and teach them to obey. This is what it looks like to to make disciples is to show people what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to yield your life to Jesus, to surrender and give him authority and control. Teach them what that looks like. You see, discipleship's the grand goal of our church because it's the final command that Jesus gave his followers, and it has always been seen as the greatest and most significant task that the church throughout the ages has been entrusted with. 
For each of us, we must be, if we are followers of Jesus, we must be disciples, apprentices of Jesus who are determined to make more disciples because it is the single most important thing that Jesus gave the church. And we believe as a church that we'll accomplish this goal by having our perspective realigned in our weekly gathering and by embracing the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us as a church and by carrying out that mission together as a community. Or as we like to say it, again, our mission is to experience renewed life as Jesus renews our thinking, giving us renewed purpose, fulfilled alongside renewed relationships. Now, here's the question that comes up, though, about discipleship. How are we to make disciples if we ourselves are, are not first disciples of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus? And how will we become a disciple of Jesus if we first are not clear as to what that even means to be a disciple? Because this is a foreign term, isn't it, in our American modern culture? We don't really use the term or title. However, it's not so foreign the practice. Think of this. Here's what I mean. We, we may not use the title or term disciple. We do, however, know and understand that our lives are constantly being formed and shaped by forces around us. You could say that you're being made a disciple of the good old U.S. of A. or as a Californian or even a San Diegan. It's when you have family come in from out of town and they ask you for directions and where to get from or how to get from point A to point B and you start saying, take the five to the 56 to the 15 and in the back of their mind, what they're seeing is that old SNL skit where Californians gave directions and they laugh. How many of you have had this happen to you? They laugh and say, it's true. I can't believe it's real because I've had that experience. It's where you as a San Diegan, you find yourself, having been in California for long enough, you finish your drink in a restaurant, and as you leave, rather than throwing the, the melting ice away in the trash, instead you look for a planter to pour it out because you're so used to having to conserve water and be conscious about being wasteful, specifically when it comes to water. It's funny, even with our friend groups, we find ourselves beginning to all think alike about some of the issues that are playing out around us. We find ourselves in friend groups oftentimes beginning even to dress and look alike and consume the same forms of content. We're constantly being formed by things around us so that we begin to reflect them. We're formed by the culture that we find ourselves in, the friend group we surround ourselves with, and even the content that we ingest. In Romans, it says it this way. Speaking of this very thing, Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you'd present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Paul, as he's writing this, he uses two terms intentionally, being conformed to the patterns of this world and being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Two different terms. The, the conformed is speaking of outside pressure and forces that cause things to fit the same mold. In fact, from Greek to Latin to English, it's the, the English word systematic or systematize is what comes out of this ancient Greek word. He's saying that the world is doing this to us, forming our lives according to its system, a system that's broken and that's built and established on pride and on selfishness and on power, and it's destructive, but we find ourselves getting caught up in that rat race and pressure. This is an outside pressure that we deal with. It's causing us to conform and become like the system that we find ourselves in. 
But then he uses a different term to talk about the transforming work that God wants to do in your life from the inside out. It's very different. Not conformed, pressed into a mold from the outside, but transformation from the inside. The word for transformation here, that you'd be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Greek to Latin to English, it's from where we get our word metamorphosis. Um, Declan, our youngest, she's five, when she was in preschool last year, she came home from school and kept saying over and over again, metamorphosis, which was so cute. She's got a little bit of a lisp. Uh, metamorphosis, it means to change. It became the running joke around our house. Anything that was coming, it was just constantly, metamorphosis, it means to change. Because they'd brought the caterpillar in. And then they'd allowed it the time and the space that it needed to do the cocoon. And then to have the transformation, it's the term that we use for that change that's a change into a whole nother form. That's what it's talking about here. That's the word and the imagery. You are pressed from the outside by the world to fit a mold. From the inside out, God's power, though, is transforming you into a whole different kind of person. It's metamorphosis. It's a transformation into a whole other form, from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's from the inside out. And where does that work begin? He tells you it's a transformation that begins in the mind. I love this about the Christian faith is that every other religion really is presenting just a list of requirements of what you need to do either to reach enlightenment or to find a way to please God himself. If you can follow the rules and live within the boundaries, well, then you've made it. Christianity is so very different from that, though, isn't it? It's about belief in your mind. Remember, it's good news. It is essentially just that. It's news, not requirement, not things to adhere to. It's belief in the finished work of Jesus, what he did on a cross for me. It's belief in, confidence in, the fact that he rose from the dead as a promise of the first fruits of all who will rise from the dead, that I have life eternal with him. When that little seed begins to sink into the soil of my mind and heart, transformation begins to take place from the inside out. It's beautiful that this is where the work begins. It begins with first repentance, doesn't it? That's the Christian message. That's what Jesus went around teaching. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's so close. It's at hand. It's so close. It's at the door. It's arriving right now. Don't miss it. Repentance means literally to change the mind. We often think of repentance as to change direction because when you change your mind, your direction does follow. Your action follows with it. But it really simply means to change the mind. If you change your mind about what you think of yourself and about God and you have that moment in time where you say, God, the truth is I'm broken beyond repair. And Jesus was right when he said, I needed rebirth, not reformation. And so Jesus, I cry out to you and ask you then to transform my life because I need you. That is repentance. Following that mindset, the belief that's planted in the mind, that settles down into the heart to change affections. In Scripture, it says God works in you both to will and to do, though. He doesn't just work in you to begin to change the desires of your heart, but then giving you by the power of his spirit the ability to do the things he's calling you to do. The actions follow. But it's never in a reverse order. It's never the action first and then feel it in the heart and then maybe convinced. No, it's, will you take the step of faith to believe? It's what Casey prayed earlier that Jesus had said, taste and see, won't you come? Don't just take it from me, for you yourself, taste and see that the Lord is good. Believe for a moment, step out in faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. When that moment happens of repentance, there's transformation that begins. The beauty is 
that in Scripture it promises that he who began the good work in you, he is faithful to complete it. That he will complete the work in your life. He is committed to you and the work that he desires to do in you. Now, don't let me lose you because I might have already. The question this all begs, if, if discipleship is what we're talking about as our goal of every follower of Jesus, how will we make disciples if we are not first one? And how will we be one if we're not clear on what this even means? So join me for a few minutes on a very nerdy rant, on a cultural excursion back in time to what it looked like in the first century for Jesus and his friends. In the first century, when Jesus arrived on the scene, although Rome is in power in that moment in time, Jewish culture is still alive and very well. It's thriving, even under Roman rule. In a part of Jewish culture in the first century, a position that was very prominent was that of a rabbi. The rabbi's responsibility was to teach the people, to train them on who God is and what God wanted from them. They're a highly esteemed individual, typically beginning their ministry at the age of 30, and their first action was... Their first line of duty was to go out and find disciples, apprentices. And that's exactly what we find Jesus doing, isn't it? At 30 years old, publicly beginning his ministry as a teacher, as a rabbi, beginning to tell people who God is and what God wants from them. In fact, embodying who God is and allowing them to see, even saying that no one has seen the Father except the only begotten. And he has come to declare who God is to you. That's what the scriptures tell us. So Jesus is his first then job as he kicks off his ministry. He needs to select disciples. Now, the Jewish culture in Jesus' day was extremely religious. In fact, to be a Jew by definition meant to be uniquely connected to God. If you are of the children of Israel, remember Israel, it's the name Jacob was renamed to contend with God, the one who wrestled with them. We are his descendants. We are the ones who wrestle with our God. We're the ones who are uniquely connected to him. So by identity, their faith was intertwined just with culture and life. And so as a young person, as you began going through schooling, that schooling was to teach and to train the next generation, not just how uh, to do some simple tasks, but also in the scriptures and in the history of their faith as a nation. But the schooling also functioned for a second form, and maybe you know this, and that's that it would weed out those who are not the best and the brightest. Three different forms of schooling in the first century for Jewish children that they could attend that historians tell us about. I won't bore you with all of the details, but by the age of like 14, if you hadn't memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, memorized them, knew them so well that if someone quoted an obscure passage, you could quote the remainder of it in its context. If you didn't memorize those first five books, after that first phase of schooling, they'd send you off to learn the family trade. Now, if you made the cut, you had two years to memorize really the rest of the Old Testament. If you could do that, you'd move on to a third phase of schooling. Most of us would not, I would not do that. So I would have been told, go learn the family trade. And so I would go to work in dad's shop or on dad's boat or out with whatever the business in the marketplace was that my family ran. But there's a third phase of schooling that basically looked like the process of, of writing an application to attend a prestigious university where you're trying to put together uh, all of your references, all, all that makes you valuable so that you can present yourself before a rabbi and beg to become one of their disciples. To be honored with that was your absolute goal in the Jewish culture. Disciple, though, is not really a word that we use in our modern culture. 
but it does carry the idea with it of apprenticeship. And I think we can understand that because if you picture even just a master craftsman and a woodworker, to be his apprentice means that you want to learn all that he knows so that you can do what he does. Because the goal is not just knowing what he knows. The goal is being like him. The goal is being able to, to live like he does, to do the things he does. You see, you don't follow a rabbi like someone would follow a person on a social media platform where you just click a button and, and clip, clip, click the button that just simply says follow and then you're done. And you wait for them to say something inspiring. If it's really inspiring, you might you know, repeat it to somebody else or retweet it. You'd give the coveted like button push there. Uh, to follow someone on Twitter costs you nothing. In fact, you can click the follow button, mute their feed and never see it again and always be thought of as a follower of that person. But following Jesus looks so very different than that. Unfortunately, I think in our culture, I think at times that's the view people have of what it looks like to be a Christian. I clicked the button, I said a prayer, now I'm waiting for someone to say something that's inspiring that maybe I'll repeat or maybe will finally drive me into some form of action. But until then, I'm just sitting here, basically functioning as if the channel's muted anyways, where I'm not even hearing from God any longer. But to follow a rabbi is so much bigger than that. Because being a disciple of a rabbi is not just about hearing what your rabbi says or simply about knowing what your rabbi knows, but about wanting to do what your rabbi would do, about wanting to be like your rabbi. You could say it this way, the goal of an apprentice of a ra or of a disciple is that they would adopt and adapt to the teachings and lifestyle of their rabbi, that they would adopt and adapt to the teachings and lifestyle of the one that they chose to follow. And that's what it's meant to look like for us as followers of Jesus. There's an ancient Jewish rabbi who 200 years before Jesus was alive, and he had a saying that got turned into a little comment that was popular and prominent in the culture that Jesus was alive in because historians reference it. And his statement was, may the blessing of being covered in the dust of your rabbi be upon you. May you forever be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Picture the imagery. We're talking about people who are walking along dusty roads from point A to point B. And if you are a disciple, you are physically, literally walking in the dust of your rabbi constantly. The blessing of God, the culture thought, rested upon those who are covered in the dust of a rabbi. Now, a rabbi's teachings in the history and culture were refer or referred to as their yoke. You, you picture, remember, oxen, two oxen who are plowing together working together in unison to plow a field, that wooden beam over their shoulders that ties them together and ties them to the plow is called a yoke. The rabbi's teachings were referred to as a yoke. And what did Jesus say about his yoke? He said, my yoke is easy. and My burden is light. Jesus is inviting us to be with him. And he's saying that this will not be a unbearable burden for you to bear. Because I'm going to walk alongside of you and then he said, listen and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly of spirit. In fact, one of the books, Danny mentioned the resource table. One of the books that's on that table is called Gentle and Lowly. And it's a beautiful book that we gave to our home group leaders, I believe in the springtime, but a beautiful book written about what Jesus says about himself. Of all the ways that you would describe Jesus, would you use those words? Because it's how he would describe himself. Gentle and lowly of heart. It's beautiful. Now, when Jesus comes along, when you look at him in the Gospels, did you know that only five times does Jesus say, believe in me? 
But there are 20 times in the Gospels, four times as many, where Jesus looks at people and says, follow me. There's a difference between the two. You know, it wasn't that many years ago when Time Magazine did a cover story about the most admired people in history. And, and people that you would expect, Shakespeare, Napoleon, Lincoln, they made the list, as did Jesus. And I'm sure he was very flattered to be so admired. But when you think about it, Jesus never asked for admiration, did he? He wasn't asking for a fan club. He asked for followers. I think for some people, that that's their view of Jesus, though, is that there, there may be an admirer, they're a fan from a distance, but what Jesus was asking for was activity, a choice to follow him actively. An admirer is impressed. A follower is someone who's devoted, though. An admirer will just stand back to observe, but a follower will engage. An admirer might even stand and applaud in a moment, but a follower is willing to surrender. And Jesus would talk open, openly about how it would cost us something. In, in fact, he'd tell us to count the cost of that surrender to choose to follow him. And it wasn't just a metaphor, was it, when Jesus said that there would be a cost involved? Some of you have experienced this. In fact, when he gives the examples, he gives the highest possible form of examples, talking about how you might lose even your own family, the, the most dear of relationships. It might cost you even your own life, he said. You might pay the highest price relationally. You might pay the highest price physically. Make no mistake that, that salvation is free to you, that you don't have to earn it. By grace, you've been saved, the free gift of God. It's free to you. It cost him everything. But he was very clear in saying, although you don't have to earn it, he didn't hide the fact that it may cost you when you choose to accept it and embrace it. Is it going to cost me everything, though, to follow him? Well, what he does require is that I have a loose hand on everything in case it costs me those things. I have to choose. He requires that I loosen my grip on everything, that I'm willing to lose everything if I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, if you went to a rabbi in the first century to apply to be one of his disciples, he would grill you with questions, quotations of scripture, starting a verse and letting you finish the passage. And for the most part, people would be turned down and told, go back and you know, go to dad's business and work the family trade. But for the select few, for the prestigious, they would hear the words that everyone in that culture longed to hear. The highest honor that the rabbi would say, come and follow me. But in the Gospels, if you think about it, Jesus flips the script, breaking the social norm in at least a couple of ways, both in how and who. Think about this. He breaks the social norm both in how and who. The how. How he called people. The social norm was that you would go and beg and grovel and bring all of your credentials before a rabbi to give them the honor in an honor and shame culture to deny you the privilege of following them. Keeping that social structure intact, Jesus flips it on its head, the one who's gentle and lowly of heart, flips the honor-shame social structure on its head by going and putting himself out vulnerably and saying, would you come and follow me? Putting himself out to where he could be rejected. This, for us, we, we don't pick up on this in the 21st century. In the first century, people would have heard this or read this and found this shocking that Jesus would do this as a rabbi. It's not just how he called disciples, but the who. He did not go to the prestigious schooling or, or little institutions or to other rabbis to pull from their apprentices to build his team of followers. Jesus didn't do that. Where did he go? He went to the workforce, which means that what? At some point in time, they were told, you're not going to make the cut. You're not good enough. And so go get a job. 
And Jesus went after the ones who had been passed over. He, he went to the ones who had already been told you don't make the cut, which is so very beautiful to me. In fact, I want you to flip, because we're in Matthew's gospel, to look at how this guy who wrote this gospel, Matthew himself, how he received his call from Jesus. It's found in Matthew chapter 9. Because this is one of the most shocking of invitations that Jesus will make in the first century context that the Bible was written in. And this passage, it might feel vaguely familiar to some of you. Almost two years ago in October of 2020, I was a guest here before even becoming the pastor. And this was a passage I walked through with you because I love this moment in time. I love the call of Matthew. It's a powerful and beautiful moment. In fact, the other gospels that give us details about this make it clear that this is Jesus re-entering Galilee and Capernaum specifically, which only matters contextually so that you know this is a place that Jesus was at often. So these are people who are very well aware of Jesus' teaching and his miracles up until this point. But it also tells us that Jesus is walking and teaching through that village with a crowd of people around him. And here's where we pick up the story, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now close your eyes and visualize for a second. We're along a major trade route in Capernaum where the land has been divided to the sons of Herod. And on that trade route, right as the waters of the Galilee came up to the shoreline, would have been an elevated booth above the cross streets that met in Capernaum. And in that elevated booth was the tax man, the tax collector. At the base of his booth would have been some Roman thugs who were his enforcers. And he was positioned there with great power to extract from the people really whatever he saw fit. And as Jesus is walking by, it says that Jesus says to him, follow me. So Matthew arose and followed him. Now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Think about that final statement Jesus just made there. It's beautiful. He's saying that the duty and responsibility of a good physician is to be with the ones who need their wisdom and care. Whereas rabbinic traditions in the first century were telling people instead, and I quote, let not a man associate with the sinners even to bring them near to the Torah, to the scriptures. They're saying, hide from those people, get away from them lest they contaminate you. But what is Jesus doing instead? He's showing no fear of being tainted or defiled by the sinners. He's present with them. As one commentator put it, I loved it so beautifully. He's present with them to infect them with the grace of God. The sinners, it's the cultural classification for those who had given up on even trying to reach or please God, who had said, screw the religion, forget our history, we don't want anything to do with it. And Jesus is sitting with those kinds of people. It can seem a bit crazy and even incomprehensible for us that someone would just drop everything, even their job in a lucrative position, just at an invitation, as Matthew does here, when Jesus says, will you follow me? But as we've already discussed, it's a huge deal in the culture and the highest honor, really, 
in the culture in that moment in time was to follow a rabbi. So you understand some of those dynamics. And then also we're clear that Jesus has already been in Capernaum, known now as a great teacher and a healer. And that's why even in a moment's notice, he and others will drop everything for their chance to follow Jesus. Now, when he chose to follow Jesus, I just want to point out three things that are really points of application. And spoiler alert, you'll recognize these three things as really what our values are as a church. If our goal is to live a renewed life in Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, these are the three things we've said, perspective, mission, community. These are the targets we're aiming at because we believe that makes a follower of Jesus. You're going to see that these are the things that are involved in following him, even when we look at someone's life like Matthew's. So three things very quickly that we'll walk through. And the first is this, that if you're invited to follow Jesus, it's an invitation for transformation. That's the first thing. There's an invitation here for transformation. Remember, rather than going to the rabbinic schools of the day, Jesus went to the working class people, which means these are people who were already passed over. These are already people who were sent away saying they didn't make the cut, but Jesus wanted them even when no one else did, which I will tell you encourages me, and I hope it encourages you too. Because I know that this is true of me. I wouldn't and I don't make the cut. And, and honestly, for so long, I viewed it as a pressure to try to make the cut. In fact, uh, I was thinking as Casey was leading worship this morning. Casey and I are brothers, if you didn't know that, the guy who led worship today. It's, you can tell by our great head of hair. It's actually the short legs and long torso that are the dead giveaway. But, but don't mention it because it's a point of insecurity for both of us. But we grew up in the house of a church planter and wonderful godly parents who moved us across the country. And our family was on a journey and an adventure. And it was a stressful and hard adventure for my parents. And that created a very high-stress home where I think for many reasons that were good, but not the best, we had a dad who was rather intense and often aloof because of what he felt he was entrusted with that was a weighty work and job. And that created a really difficult way for us to try to view the Christian faith where all of a sudden we're viewing God with the rigidity that we're coming up against in our home with a hard man who, who ruled the roost in our house where now all of a sudden you project those things onto God and you're viewing God then as this angry judge who does have a bunch of requirements and seems to just be waiting for you to mess up to slam the gavel and give you judgment. For me, I started to view the church as a house that was built up on stilts, and I knew that there were people inside it. I knew that they even seemed to enjoy it, but I thought I had no way to build my way up into that house. Then everything shifted for me when I heard someone talk about grace. I remember as I heard this guy talk about grace, I remember afterwards arguing with him that none of what you just said makes any sense. And he just got the most stupid grin on his face, which just irritated me, and kept smiling, saying, yes. And the more I pushed back, saying, that doesn't make sense, though. What you're saying, he just, uh-huh, yeah, and smile. And, and that man told me, why don't you reread the gospel and see what you think? And so for me, that's what I did as a high school student. I sat down and started to reread through a gospel, and I was captivated by the grace of Jesus. I thought the whole time, if I could belong, it's going to be that it's built on my merit like rungs that are on a ladder or steps and stairs that lead into the house. If I could build it on my merit, this crushing weight. And then I saw finally that I could belong and it was based on his mercy, not built on my merit. It was that grace shattered the view that I had and kicked the stilts out from under the house so it came down to street level to include broken people like me who could be welcomed in. 
I don't know what someone's made Jesus to look like in your view. I don't know what someone's left the church feeling like in your perspective. But can I tell you, do the thing that I did. Open a Bible and look at Jesus. Just walk through a gospel and see the beauty of God among us and the grace that he had for people. It did something in my heart. It started something in that moment that still is a work that God is doing. Because there's beauty and grace. For so long, fear and shame were the only motivations I found as I looked the direction of God or the church. And now all of a sudden, I found something else. I found a more powerful motivation than those, and it was love, that I was loved by God. And that I could love him in response to that. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel. That to be invited to follow Jesus is an invitation for transformation. And that's an invitation that goes out to broken people, even a guy like this. I mean, tax collectors, even in our modern setting, they're not like the biggest, most popular. There's like not fan clubs for these kinds of people, right? No one, no one is thrilled. Like, I don't know, if I worked for the IRS, I probably wouldn't tell people. Like, I'd hide it more than CIA cover. Like, because no one is thrilled about the reality that exists that we have an authority over us extracting money from us. And then sometimes us saying, well, where does it go? It was even worse back in that day because for someone to function in this role meant that they had partnered with the dominating nation who is suppressing the nation of the Jews. They're now working in cahoots with the Romans themselves. And as broken as that sounds, it's even worse because it was like purchasing a fast food franchise where the franchisee, the person who purchases it, they get to decide how much they're charging for certain things and they get to skim off the top and keep what's theirs because the Roman government, historians tell us, would franchise this out to local tax collectors saying, here's what the bottom line is, what we get. No one needs to know what that number is. You can charge whatever you want. And he could charge whatever he wants. There's historical records that talk about how he could tax every wheel that was on the cart that you pushed into the marketplace. There was no end to these taxes. So by law, this man had a lot of authority, but by action then, he had a lot of animosity. For him, it was a lucrative career, but it came with a very heavy social cost. In fact, Jesus picked up on that. Remember in Matthew 5, where he's talking about loving your enemies? And he says, if you only do good to those who do good to you, you're no better than, what's the standard he uses? Oh, the tax collectors, the lowest of the lows in the culture. And yet Jesus pursued someone like that. Jesus went after him anyway. It's beautiful. This guy would have been viewed at the very least as a failure amongst his community or worse as a traitor for working with Rome to extort and take advantage of his own countrymen. I'm sure those are things he was often reminded of as people walked by that elevated booth. But Jesus now walks by surrounded by a large crowd and Jesus stops at the base of the booth. And when he did, I would bet what you heard was... As people held their breath and, and, and hit each other to stop and waited to see, they probably snickered and sneered, assuming that Jesus would do what they had done, that Jesus would, would put him in his place, that Jesus would make a public spectacle and example out of him, saying what a rotten person this was. But what Jesus does stuns the crowd around him because Jesus invites a person like that to follow him that Jesus treated failures as if they had never failed. That this becomes an earmark of his ministry is that Jesus wanted those that no one else wanted. It's the mystery of all mysteries that I am fully known and fully loved by God. 
It wasn't long ago I ran into a former student, now an adult, uh, who had gone away to school and finished their master's program and then come back to the local community. I ran into her in a store, it wasn't that long ago, and started asking her about life and then asking her about her faith and like, well, what do you think now as an adult? You're in your 20s. What do you think about Jesus? And she hung her head and said, you know, I've always believed the facts about the book, about the historicity of what Jesus did and accomplished. She said, but I've always just struggled so much to believe that God could know me and that he could still love me. And it is the mystery of mysteries, isn't it? And for so many of us, this is the the battleground of our faith is not about the facts of it. It's about the reality that you have a God who loves you and treats failures as if they haven't failed because he gives grace, which is so otherworldly. It's like kryptonite and Superman. These are things that, that do not exist in our world. This is so different how Jesus would treat people. He willingly chose his disciples. He chose you and me, and he knew completely what he was getting. And I believe it's because he also knew what you and I would be becoming. Because to be asked to be a disciple of Jesus is to be given an invitation for transformation. You know, it's really beautiful, this guy, Matthew. No one had a way of seeing what Jesus saw in him. Jesus saw inside the flawed laud of a man that Luke and Mark's gospel would actually refer to as Levi. That was his former name. Jesus would rename him. Jesus saw in him someone he would rename Matthew that would be a great evangelist and a world-shaping gospel writer. Jesus would choose his 12 disciples. Many of them are blue-collar workers who are fishermen or they're insurrectionists. But what he needed also was a man who was good with a pen. And so he chose this tax collector, transformed his life, and Matthew will become the first to write an eyewitness gospel account of the life and teaching the work of Jesus. It's crazy when you think that Levi, this man, the covetous rip-off artist of a tax collector, would have his name and identity changed to Matthew, which literally means the gift of God. But that's how Jesus saw him. I love that when Matthew, even here in his own gospel, tells his own story, he doesn't even mention his former name or identity, does he? And I think it's because for him, Jesus had so changed his identity, changed who he was, that to even mention himself as Levi would feel as if he's writing about someone who no longer even existed. Because to follow Jesus is an invitation for all of us to be transformed by him. Yes, he sees me as I am, but he also sees me as I can be as he shapes and reforms my life. The person that he'll cause me to be is what he sees me as. It's not just an invitation for transformation. There's also an invitation here, if you're going to follow Jesus, the second thing, to carry on a legacy. The invitation is, yes, be transformed, but the invitation then is work with Jesus to carry out his mission and message in the world. In fact, this is what Luke chapter 5, verse 28 tells us. When Jesus gives this invitation to, to this man, Levi, that Levi got up, left everything to follow Jesus that he had a whole new life's purpose that was no longer wrapped up in his work before. And if we stick with Jewish culture and how so many biblical scholars would now agree, that it's probable that 10 of the 12 of Jesus' disciples would have been under the age of 18. Some would guess in between even the ages of 14 to 18. The two exceptions to this would be Peter, who we're told was married, and then probably this guy, Matthew, because of the job that he held in the community, he probably was above the age of 18, which means that the Last Supper imagery that's very famous is probably 
very skewed because they look very old, and Jesus looks like the young one at the table. But it also would explain some of the brash impulsiveness the disciples seem to manifest when they're like, call down fire, Jesus. And we're like, that seems over the top. Not when you're 14. When you're 14, it feels totally rational to do that and, and to react that way. Now, I bring that up because Jesus is a rabbi. He's entrusting his mission and his message to his disciples who are a bunch of teenagers that the world had already passed over and said, you don't make the cut. And he would train that small group of teenagers to carry out his message of life and hope to the whole world. And if they failed to pass it out, then the life and mission of Jesus, think of this, the mission of God in heaven would have utterly failed because the message and the mission would have died with Jesus. See, to be called to be a disciple comes with an invitation to carry on the legacy of what Jesus is doing, which is something that they accepted and a mission that they carried out to their generation. And the same can be said for you, that he's entrusting you with that same mission. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, during on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus will refer to his friends and say, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The world without you is going to continue to stumble in darkness, but I have placed a light in this world. The you that's used there, the you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, it's emphatic in the tense. It means that Jesus was saying, you are the only salt in this earth that will keep it preserved, keep it from decay and from rotting. You are the only light in this world that will keep people from stumbling in darkness. Do you see what Jesus is teaching us here? Is that without us carrying out the mission and message of our rabbi, the world will continue to stumble in darkness. The world will continue to rot and decay. As a disciple of Jesus, you are in many ways carrying then the world's only hope, which means that we shouldn't sit back and disengage from the culture and talk about how rotten it is and how it's so quickly decaying in the good old glory days. No, we're supposed to engage with it to bring about life and hope and light and revelation. We're supposed to engage in the way that Jesus did with broken people who were the sinners, who were the tax collectors, so that they could see Jesus alive in us and find him as refreshing in us as these people found him in their day as Jesus broke into their world. Oh, and as we've talked in this series, it's not just that he's entrusting you to do this on your own. He's entrusting and calling us to do this together. You don't feel the weight of the world of, oh my goodness, no, this is God's work that he's doing in the world. We get to partner with him and we're going to do it arm in arm. That's what he's calling us to. Because to follow Jesus, it's an invitation, yes, to be transformed by him, but it's also an invitation then to move forward, carrying on his legacy. My friends, the world needs you as a disciple. And I challenge you that that ought to be your primary goal in life, to be like Jesus and to carry out his mission and his message to a lost and dying world. Okay, so here's how we close. By just me reminding you the other thing that I think is true about this. To be invited to follow Jesus is an invitation also for relationship. In fact, when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, there's a Greek linguist by the name of Dr. Weiss, who points out that Jesus' simple words, follow me, would be better translated, follow with me. Because Jesus' words were an invitation to a relationship. He wasn't saying, follow the rules. He was saying, no, follow me. He wasn't saying, just just walk close behind me. No, he was saying, walk with me, closely with me. It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, where it says that he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. 
The goal of Jesus in calling a disciple is that they would first be with him long before he'd asked them to do anything for him because the goal was just to be with him. Yes, we partner in his mission and message, but, but for us, the goal of the disciple was to be near Jesus. That's what he longed for. This is what God is after, not what he can get from you or get you to do for him. He wants you. And the beauty is by the end of the book, we start to realize that the end goal of God was not even for you to be a disciple. Because if you fast forward to the last chapter of Revelation, what do we find God? He's realized his goal and God's goal for himself is to be king of a redeemed and restored creation that's whole again. But what was his goal for you? You aren't there on that great day with him being referred to as a disciple. You're there on that day called his son. And ladies, that's not offensive that you're a son. The reason you're called a son is because the sons had full access and rights to all that the father had. And he was saying, there's no second class citizen. Your culture may have constructed this kind of broken. That's not how it works for me. You all have equal access to the favor and grace of God himself. You will all be sons. My friends, this is an invitation to relationship. When Jesus is asking us to follow him, it's not just obey me and get in line and follow the rules. It's come and know me and be with me. And he's an equal access employer who's giving all of us the same kind of access to him. Where you and I, we are all called the sons of God. My friends, discipleship begins with being with Jesus with the goal of becoming like him. Knowing and showing Jesus to the world around us. Remember in your life that if you've chosen to follow Jesus, that's an invitation for transformation. That he who began the work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it. And it's an invitation to carry on a legacy, to live out the mission and message of God's love for a broken world. It's an invitation for a relationship that he wants to know you and be known by you. Or for us as a church, we say it this way, that, that our mission is for us to experience renewed life to experience renewed life as we follow Jesus. That's our goal, to experience renewed life as Jesus renews our thinking, as he transforms us. It's the byproduct of following him. As he transforms us into his image, giving us a renewed purpose. He's inviting us to carry out his legacy, his mission and message to this world, fulfilled alongside of renewed relationships, that he's inviting us into a relationship with him and with his body that's functioning still on planet earth today, his church, a grace-filled community. To me, it's really beautiful that Jesus never asked anything of you that he wouldn't first do himself. In fact, before, before you or I could even respond to, to be willing to offer to give up anything that there was no cost too high to following him, Jesus would first do that for us, wouldn't he? leaving the glories and the safety and the beauty of heaven to walk amongst the lowliest of lows in creation, to become breakable and broken for us, that Jesus would not ask us to do anything for him that he would not first do for us. He would give his all for us. The beauty for us is that our motivation now is not fear or shame. Those are powerful motivators. But that's not what we find with Jesus. The motivation for us is love, that we are loved by him in such great measure that he did become breakable, that he would become broken. And that we who were first loved respond then with a love that we have received. 
his tremendous, gracious, lavish love. His invitation, it echoes over 2,000 years to be heard over us today. Follow me. What an honor that we're invited by Jesus to follow him, to walk closely with him, and to have him move and change and transform us from the inside out. And so, Jesus, we thank you that this is an invitation that still does echo to be heard over us today, and that this doesn't carry with it a burden or a heavy yoke. This carries with it a gift and a blessing, something that lifts heavy burdens off of us. Jesus, we thank you that you are so very gracious, that you've been so gracious and patient with me. Jesus, I'm so thankful. And God, for us as a church, we want to look like you, Jesus. We want the world to encounter you, Jesus. We want our lives to be healed and made whole by you, Jesus. And so, God, that's what we're asking, that we would be known as a Jesus-loving people, as a group of people who, who love you and who look like you and who others can come to expect to encounter your love through our lives when they come here. So, Jesus, we pray that for our church corporately, but, Jesus, we pray that for each individual who is a part of this church that the world would encounter in us the beauty, the radical, life-altering, beautiful power of your gracious love. Jesus, I pray that they would not find harshness or politics or heavy opinions. Jesus, that they would find you first. Jesus, that they would be captivated by you only that we'd set aside all of our preferences, that we'd set aside all of our own agendas, that we would be a Jesus-loving group of people that, Jesus, you could love this community through. God, we give you our lives because it is our reasonable act of service. It is our logical conclusion. A God who created the universe and gave himself for me, Jesus, it just makes sense for me to give my life to you. And so, God, we give our lives to you and tell you that we will answer the call to follow you, to walk with you. And so transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.